0: Carbon dioxide, CO2, is the primary greenhouse gas responsible for climate change. Humans have increased atmospheric CO2 concentration by 47% since the Industrial Revolution began. On this podcast, we've talked about electric vehicles, green buildings, and later in the series, we'll talk about reforestation and get a sneak peek into renewable energy technologies. Those will all help. But with what's in the atmosphere today, compounded on top of what has already been accumulated to this point, achieving net zero in 2050 is gonna require a more aggressive approach and a stronger target. What we need to be aiming for is absolute zero. For that, we'll need a push. Sandra Odendahl and Robert Niven are here to talk endgame. We'll learn how carbon capture sequestration and storage might be a large-scale answer Carbon reduction. Welcome to our fourth episode of The Edge of Energy, a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. The NRG COSIA Carbon X Prize was developed to address the rising CO2 emissions in our world by challenging innovators around the globe to develop technologies that could convert CO2 into products. Two winners develop solutions associated with concrete, one in LA and one right here in Canada. Meet the CEO of Carbon Cure, Robert Niven. Thanks for joining us. Robert, first congratulations. Give us a brief review of this competition. Where does Canada stand now and what's next for Carbon Cure as a leader in this space?
1: Thank you very much. We're awfully proud to have won the NRG Cosea Carbon X Prize. It was a global competition that attracted around 2000 companies from around the world to compete on the merits of who could provide the uh, breakthrough technology, which created the most value from converting CO2 into usable products. In our case, we use CO2 to make concrete. What I thought was really remarkable about the process is not only did it help us accelerate our commercialization of new technologies and bring them into the market, but also it had this impact on so many other companies and many of them were Canadian. And also interestingly, many of them were operating within the same space of concrete. So I think that this bodes very well for the future of Canadian cleantech companies that
0: can help to decarbonize the built environment. In episode three, we heard from Finn MacDonald from the Canadian Green Building Council talking about the ability of urban developers to make carbon sinks in their new builds. What really gets me excited is when we start talking about the building materials and the embodied carbon of those materials. And concrete is a great example because we pour a ton of concrete every year around the globe. And if we could turn concrete into a carbon storing material, then we could actually build our way out of this problem. Can you explain this term? and give us an idea of how much this could potentially reduce our emissions.
1: There's a concept called the embodied CO2 of construction, and what embodied CO2 means is the CO2 that's emitted from the materials and the construction phase that go into buildings. Rather than thinking about all the emissions that would be released from this embodied process or from the operating emissions of energy use for heating and cooling and lighting of, of buildings, what if we could actually use products that were made with co2 so thereby a building itself wouldn't be a source of co2 emissions but by virtue of the building materials that we choose we could actually absorb more co2 in the building itself think of it like a battery with energy and recharging it and but in this case actually with co2 where we're sinking co2 into the materials how do you measure the amount of co2 in the atmosphere Carbon cure is agnostic on the source of CO2. It is, however, all post-industrial, meaning it's waste CO2 that would normally be released from emission stacks of heavy industry. And there is a industry of uh, CO2 companies called industrial gas companies, which capture and purify that CO2 and sell it to other industries like the food and beverage industry. Now they're also selling CO2 to concrete. In the future, I can imagine different sources of CO2 that would become available where CO2 could even be scrubbed out of the atmosphere using things like direct air capture or by using plants as a way of capturing the CO2 and then pulling the CO2 from that organic matter. So as new sources of CO2 become available, we'll be looking at all of those as opportunities to be able to feed our technology, which permanently mineralizes that CO2 in concrete.
0: Are there digital solutions that can help this along? What's being offered in the way of artificial intelligence in this sector?
1: Digital can play a really important role by creating new ways of reducing the CO2 of concrete. And we're using this right now quite extensively to take a big data or analytics approach to the concrete production and quality processes, and then using that to inform new efficiencies to pull out even additional CO2 uh, while continuing to make concrete a very high performance. So this is something that we're layering into the work that we're doing today. Secondly, I would say that digital has a critical role in actually reporting the real time environmental impact of buildings in a very high integrity way so that we empower designers of buildings and people who purchase concrete ultimately with the right data so that they can make informed decisions on choosing the right building
0: materials for their particular project. What's the difference between carbon utilization, the U, and carbon storage, the S.
1: There's a lot of terms in this industry, in this technology vertical. So things like carbon capture, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, which is called CCUS. And then now there's a new type of technology that's called carbon dioxide removal that uses the acronym CDR. They're not so much as distinct technologies, but more of a spectrum. I think that's the best way to think about it, is they all accomplish the same thing capturing co2 and putting it for use or permanent storage in different types of ways carbon capture is as it sounds is just the process of capturing co2 so that would be much like garbage collection and you have to do something with that co2 and this is where utilization or storage is the different options that one would have storage typically means putting co2 in the subsurface, so in the geology, which could be saline aquifers or oil and gas reservoirs, or utilization, which is the space that we're in, is why don't we look at CO2 as a feedstock for making things? And there's a whole range of different things that you can make with carbon dioxide, including concrete, but also aggregates and chemicals and fuels and even nanomaterials. So this is where we focus, is let's not look at CO2 just as a waste product, But let's think about it as a way that we can actually create the products that we need today so it's a bit of a paradigm shift and the last term that we had mentioned was carbon removal and this is a distinction of where you get the co2 from so in the case of carbon removal is let's look for atmospheric sources of capture and then use either of those two storage options of utilization or putting it underground
0: Scotiabank's Sandra Odendahl has almost 25 years of experience in environmental science, corporate sustainability, and responsible finance. Her days are spent ensuring that environmental and social governance topics that matter most to stakeholders are being addressed. The goal is net zero, and maybe even absolute zero. But before we get there, the idea of being carbon neutral is a reality. What does offsetting do to help us in the interim?
2: Thanks very much. That's really, that's a tough question. And what I'm going to do is start by just making sure to ground this in what do we mean by an offset? So broadly, a carbon offset is a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions or an increase in storing them either through permanently sequestering them or land restoration or planting trees. But the bottom line is that an offset is used to compensate for emissions that happen somewhere else. And because greenhouse gases mix in the atmosphere, it doesn't really matter exactly where they're reduced because from the perspective of the planet, the effects are the same. Whether you stop causing an emission-causing activity or you enable an equivalent emission-reducing activity somewhere else. So just level-setting on that, I think that offsetting really gives us an option to reduce greenhouse gas emissions wherever it's most efficient and least expensive to do it in order to get the result we want, which is less CO2 or less greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. I think that offsetting is actually a really important tool in virtually all scenarios for a future net zero world the net part is because it's assumed that some types of offsetting may be required. I think one of the important things is that offsets have to be of a really high quality and meet certain criteria. So I think offsetting can absolutely help us achieve our climate goals in a way that is faster, less expensive, and more efficient than making the massive amounts of changes to infrastructure that are ultimately going to be required
1: i think sandra brought up a really important point though it's the the point of quality if the integrity of those emissions are not in fact a true emission reduction of one ton and let's say there's half a ton of actual emission reductions and maybe the accounting was wrong or maybe that it just Push the emissions to occur somewhere else, but they still occurred anyways, then you actually get into a more harmful situation because that does give permission for that polluter that would have used an offset to to offset their emission which occurred. You actually get a a greater climate impact. So I think you'd be really, really careful around quality. Another thing that we're seeing, and we're reading a lot about through groups like Mark Carney's Voluntary Task Force on Carbon Markets or the Oxford Principles, and many other groups like Carbon Direct and Carbon Plan that are working on really enhancing the quality and integrity of the offset system, because it is an important tool, is also a shift towards carbon removal exclusively as a form of offset, where it's a way of actually reversing climate change and pulling CO2 out of the air, which you know the IEA reports on 1.5 degrees Celsius are, are saying is necessary, is let's ensure that we're we're forcing that to happen because another side effect of offsets is possibly deferring on, on real reductions from happening. So I'm not saying by any means offsets are not important and they should happen, but they have to be done with the highest quality. And I think there's a, a strong set of arguments right now that are saying if they do occur soon, they should be entirely
0: in the carbon removal space, whether that's natural systems or technology-based. During this pandemic, many Canadians were bound to our homes. Most of the world's emitters were at a standstill, and yet the director of the International Energy Agency said that emissions are set to jump to 1.5 billion tons this year. What does this report mean for industry and for finance? How do technologies like CCUS fit in? What else is needed to decarbonize industry?
2: To me, what that means for industry, for finance, for citizens is that it's a signal to all of us that this is going to be really hard to drop emissions in the next 28 and a half years. And then when you see that emissions are going to jump again this year, of course, that is because economies are restarting. Countries are ramping up again, which of course means energy use is going to go up again. Things like electricity, and yes, a lot of electricity in the world is provided by fossil fuels. People are going to start driving again because they're allowed to leave home. They're allowed to fly. And I think what that means is that we need a massive transformation in the global energy system, and we need a massive transformation in the way that we do everything. Some of the key things for finance and business, I'd say, Big one, huge innovation is needed. A lot of the technologies that we need by 2050, right now, they're in early stages of development. So we have to massively scale up things that are not proven. Number two is something that you'll hear in any decarbonization pathway scenario, and that is we need energy efficiency we need clean electricity supply, and we need to electrify everything. That's a given in Canada's decarbonization pathway as well as a global one. The really somewhat controversial finding in the latest IEA report, and again, big implications for industry and finance, are that there is no new investment in new fossil fuel supply under the IEA's net zero by 2050 scenario. It may mean some investment in existing fossil fuels, but nothing new. And then as Rob was saying earlier, taking carbon dioxide out of the air or direct air capture, as well as carbon capture utilization and storage is really important. And then last but not least, and I think this is the one that's underplayed in a lot of the discussions about what are we going to do to get to net zero, is that If and when consumers start to change their behavior to align with a net zero aspiration, that has implications for a number of industries, for growth in GDP, for all sorts of things. Because making, transporting, and buying stuff is what is a big driver of emissions of any kind. I think the bottom line is that it's going to be really, really hard and require a massive transformation in the way we do everything. The last piece about how to CCUS fit in, it's going to be an important piece of it and it's especially important for sectors that are really hard to abate. So you're going to see a lot of interest in CCUS ramp up in Canada with uh, government support and increased attention on it as an option.
1: If I could just touch on one of the points that Sandra had said about consumer action, I think the concept of procurement is critically important here and this was one of the key items that was even highlighted in Bill Gates' most recent book on how to avoid a climate disaster, is the role of procurement, which can impact a lot of those really hard to decarbonize industries, like steel and cement as two examples, is if procurement, whether that be personal procurement or consumers or government for that instance, to keep in mind, a government would buy about 40% of all concrete produced in any given country or city, They have very outsized purchasing power, so when they're able to blend that into their procurement requirements, it can really accelerate the transition, and sometimes it only takes one project to require a low-carbon product for the suppliers in that entire supply chain to permanently transform themselves. So then they're not only having an effect on that project, but they were the catalyst in actually changing the supply chain so that all future projects are then able to benefit. And the simplest example is something that we see all of the time around procurement. Sometimes you just need to ask, is the solutions are already there, but they were just never asked for. And just that mere question or including carbon into your procurement requirements. So it's not just low bidder, but they're also taking under considerations around value is it can lead to, from my observation, around 30 to 40% CO2 reductions in concrete without any impact on price or quality, but you just need to ask. So there's one thing to take away. I think that anybody who's listening here today can apply, whether it is in their own personal or professional life, is procurement is critically important.
2: The oil company Equinor is doing something extraordinary on the Sleipner gas platform in the North Sea. It pumps millions of tonnes of carbon dioxide under the seabed. The greenhouse gas that threatens to warm the planet is simply bunkered away, and Equinor has plans to sequester even more carbon dioxide.
0: The
1: storage potential in the North Sea is large
0: enough to
1: handle uh, substantial part, if not everything that comes out of Europe.
0: That was a clip referring to Equinor, a company that works with oil and gas, talking about their decarbonization efforts in offshoring and plans to replicate in other countries where it's possible. How do you scale innovations like this or even direct air capture models? How do you scale them globally?
2: Yeah, interesting. So having, um, you know, after working in in the clean technology, clean innovation space and in finance, I can say that the one thing I've learned and observed is that scaling up any innovative technology actually only needs two things, time and money. (laughs) And for clean technology, there's a third thing, and that's public policy, which also matters quite a bit. But seriously, scaling up any innovations, um, such as what Econor is doing with offshore CCS installations and the work that's been done to date on direct air capture scale-up, I think generally you can say the process starts with research, and then you get development or scale-up. Then after some time, you get to commercial deployment, which is where somebody's using the thing. And then finally, you want diffusion, and that's where you get to the point where Pretty much everybody's using it or can choose to have it if they want it. I think that getting through that scale up model and its grossly simplified scale up model, government is incredibly important to catalyzing clean innovation. They are really important because they do things like they provide incentives or regulations that reduce the market uncertainty. So, for example, carbon pricing. Like, if you know that carbon pricing is here to stay. Then you know the cost of not addressing a CO2 emissions challenge, and you know the you know the financial cost benefit analysis is, is much easier to calculate if you have some certainty around upcoming, uh, climate change related regulations or pricing. The other thing where government plays a big role, is also in incenting. R and D, incenting the investment that's needed to carry those innovations through to the point where they're ready for the marketplace. And obviously, you need the innovators, uh, you need the financiers, you need our universities and colleges, a lot of different players involved in this. The other thing is that scaling up innovations. CCS is actually not that new. As you may know, there's at least 20 large-scale CCS installations in the world. So these are the ones where there's deep geological storage of CO2. And of those 20-ish, three of them are in Canada. So actually, Canada has, um, has you know, some experience and a lot of capabilities in this space, which I think you're going to be hearing more about.
0: There are effective mitigation solutions available to us today, but they still use a lot of energy. Is there any way to avoid this use?
2: So I guess if you want to avoid the amount of energy that's required to implement many of the mitigation solutions for CO2, I guess there's two choices. So one is you can stop emitting or drastically reduce the amount of emissions in the first place. Or number two is to find low-cost, low-energy ways to mitigate the emissions once they're out there. And certainly, reducing emissions in the first place, it's probably the first choice, but obviously not always cost-effective, it's going to be very, very difficult because as uh, as I sometimes tell uh, folks on my team, you know, unfortunately, everything pollutes. But there really are some great frameworks on how to decarbonize the economy and what it is that we need to do to reduce emissions in order that the amount of mitigation uh, that's left to address is much smaller. And again, it's pretty much about making all electricity non-emitting, so nuclear, hydro, geothermal, wind, solar, biomass, whatever, and then electrify everything you can. So transportation, home heating and cooling, Industrial sources of electricity and energy, electrify it all. Massive energy efficiency, so of course use as little energy as possible. And then of course capture or offset or mitigate any emissions that you couldn't eliminate at the outset.
1: I would say like a couple other points to add to that is the area that you mentioned around like material efficiency or even circular systems. And what I mean by that is looking at what waste streams are out there, that are currently being landfilled today and creating a whole set of other problems. What streams are we talking about? Like these waste streams that could be diverted and reused instead of having to go out and extract virgin materials. In my world, again, our, our industry in concrete, there's a lot of history and a lot more that can be done in this area, such as concrete uses a lot of waste material from the power industry. So fly ash or the slag our steel industry like slag instead of having to make virgin cement. And we're working on a lot of other things around water and end of service life concrete that can be crushed up and reused instead of new aggregate or wastewater that would be used to replace fresh water. And these again have benefits of having to divert the the waste uh, processing costs. But these are all part of this discussion where around material efficiency and, and circularity.
2: Rob has raised an excellent point, and that is you have to be considering the climate change solutions in the broader context of other environmental and social and economic ambitions that we have as a society and challenges that we have. I sometimes fear that in our our enthusiasm and zeal to rightfully solve the climate change challenge, We're not paying enough attention to some of the problems we're creating through some of the raw materials that we're going to need to massively increase the supply of, say, batteries or even turbine blades or whatever it is. Where is that coming from? Who are the people that are mining it? How is it being transported to the places where the manufacturing is taking place? How is the manufacturing taking place? What kind of water pollution are we creating? Are we looking at applying a circular economy lens where we're using the waste of one process as an input to the other, such as carbon cures use of waste CO2 as a, as a way to make better concrete? These are really important facets to solving the climate problem in conjunction with a host of other really important social and environmental issues.
0: You are both involved in a national CCUS thought leaders group designed to make a pitch to advance CCUS in Canada. How does this fit into national strategy? Maybe I'll lead on this one, Sandra.
1: There are some industries that they lack solutions. Like let's take cement and steel again. These are very important components of our economy and essential materials that we need in for modern civilization, roads and schools and homes. There's no way around that. We need these materials. So if we start with that premise and recognize that population growth and urbanization are occurring, so we're gonna need even more of that than we do today. These industries are not going to be decarbonized by simply putting up some windmills and, and solar panels because they emit a lot of their emissions in the case of cement, the majority of their emissions from a chemical reaction. In this case, it's called calcination. So we can do a great job on the energy side of things, but we're still left with two-thirds of the problem, which is this process emissions from a chemical reaction that occurs of turning limestone into something called clinker. So for those large industries that are very important to our economy, we need to find a way to decarbonize them, and really there's very few options aside from carbon capture and utilization of, of new ways to decarbonize that are not already being implemented today, like efficiencies, and uh, substitution of, of clinker with other waste materials. So I I think there needs to be a role here. I think that we need to be looking at both utilization and geological storage in parallel. We've got to be doing everything all at once with urgency.
2: Yeah, so just building on, uh, on Rob's comments on this initiative, the CCUS Thought Leaders Group that Natural Resources Canada has put together I think Rob nailed it. I mean, we are going to need to figure out how to decarbonize some very hard to decarbonize sectors where we continue to need those goods. I think the other facet of how this fits into a national strategy for Canada in particular is that Canada of course, has established an ambitious climate change, net zero mitigation pathway. And we also want a strong economy, good jobs. We want opportunities to export our goods, our services, our intelligence to the rest of the world. So there's a lot of really compelling reasons to look at technologies like CCUS is something that can not only address our climate change ambitions, but also our ambitions to be seen as innovators and and in a growing economy. On the CCUS file, Canada has a lot of strengths to bring to this space, and not only within our own country, but hopefully things that we could share with the world and so some examples are we have clean innovation policies and and funding that's been made available for that but we also have highly qualified experts in government in the private sector in both small and large companies and academia who've done this before we had a disproportionate number of Canadians in the semi-finalists for the carbon x prize for example we have 3 of the the world's large-scale CCS facilities, three of the 20 are in Canada. So we actually know what we're doing on this file. And, of course, I would also be remiss to not say we also have a sophisticated financial services sector with a lot of people who understand how to finance this stuff. So I think that all of those things feed into why US is seen as an important piece of a canadian strategy and i was really interested this just came out the other day the government has at least looked at three different areas of the kind of like the development trajectory support that they, they're they providing. So they're doing stuff to support CCUS innovation. They're doing the new Strategic Investment Fund Net Zero Accelerator is supporting getting CCUS piloted and, and demonstrated. And then they're looking at an investment tax credit for capital invested in large-scale CCUS projects. So this is about getting projects at scale to be incented as well. So I think all of those are indications that the federal government, for sure, and certainly several provincial governments, see this as an important piece of our climate change strategy and our economic growth strategy.
0: Well, this was very insightful. Thank you both for joining us.
2: Thanks very much uh, for having me. And Rob, it was really great to see you. Um, I'm looking forward to a time when we can actually, all of us, get together in person, In Toronto right now, we're looking forward to just being able to get out of the house.
1: (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that day too. I had a great time today. Thank you so much for talking about this important topic and Canada's important leadership role and, and creating these solutions so that we can export them to the world.
0: Sandra Odendahl is the Vice President of Social Impact and Sustainability at Scotiabank, leading the team responsible for global donations, academic partnerships, and corporate sustainability. Rob Niven is the founder and chief executive officer of Carbon Cure Technologies, the global leader in carbon dioxide removal technologies for the concrete industry. That's it for this episode of The Edge of Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to all those who helped put the show together this week Mihira Lashman, Angela Misery, Camille Hemming, and Sheena Rossiter. And of course, our friends at Scotiabank. Look for us on your favorite podcasting app. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.